Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. As always, I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a wonderful week this week, and I hope you have a relaxing or fun-filled weekend ahead of you. With me today is, of course, a special guest, but is actually my first repeat guest, but not even just my first repeat guest. This is also the first person I interviewed on this podcast. Please welcome the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of the woman who invented modern forensic, as well as his new novel, OCME, Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center, the former executive assistant to the chief medical examiner in Maryland, Bruce Goldfarb. Hello, Mary. Thank you so much for having me back. Thank you for being here. I am so excited to have you back. You are just such a wealth of knowledge. And I'm just so excited about this book that you've written. It is everything I had hoped for, for your really? second book. Really? Yes. That, when I heard that that's what you were, the direction that you were going to go in when you talked to me, I was like, yes, of course, of course. This is where well, he's going. You know, people, um, I, I get asked a lot what's it like to work there and, and what do you, what's your typical day like? So that's exactly what I wanted to do is sort of do a portrait of an institution and the people in the place. And I just love the way that you personally write. I feel like a lot of nonfiction writers, it can become hard to find a particular voice or your own voice for that matter. Um, Cause a lot of times you're telling someone else's story. You're not always telling your own, but even with 18 tiny deaths, 18 tiny deaths, excuse me. I felt like there was always like this undertone of your voice. And that's what I found so enjoyable about it. And it just even escalates even more because this is about your personal experience. So your personal touch is put on it. Obviously you did a lot of research for just not only your time here and the OCME in Maryland, but also just on the history of it in general, which was so yes. eye-opening. Yeah. When did you know that you needed to start that journey? Well, actually, well, I mean, to start the journey of the book or the history. Um, well, I'll answer your first question first. Uh, that actually originated from a request that came from Thomas Noguchi, who was the coroner to the stars in Los Angeles, who he's still active and still around. And uh, the National Association of Medical Examiners puts together a book on the history of medical examiner systems throughout the country. So Noguchi asked Dr. David Fowler, who was the chief at the time, to come up with the history of uh, the OCME in Maryland. And Fowler turned to me and said, Write, write about the history of death investigation in Maryland. So I took him literally and went very, very, very deep. And to his credit, he let me spend a lot of time in the weeds going through archival material. And I, and I wrote this basically, the well, not basically, it is the history of death investigation back to the founding of the, the colony of Maryland in 1634 and the first coroner's inquest in 1637 right up to the present day so i sort of i had that um it had to be redone it was done differently um with a different focus for the book but um you know the book i sort of had in the back of my mind as long as i was working at the 
at the medical examiner office because you know I, I have a journalism background and I, you know I figured it was going to be an unusual experience, a unique experience and to have an opportunity to have this bird's eye view of a statewide a critical statewide agency. And so I there was always in the back of my mind that maybe you know one one day this would probably be a, a good book. But that was always you know, one day. I didn't know when the day would occur. Yeah. No, it's so interesting because I like how the way you start your book is with your own personal experience of working there. And then you move into the history and then it kind of intertwines with your own story, which for someone with no formal training in writing, as you have said, or at least, right? Would you say that? No formal training. But what it is, is I, I guess it's the ability to tell a story that I mm-hmm. write. You hear my voice in it because I, I write. It's an oratorical or rhetorical style where you you, you write as it's spoken. So uh, it, it really is literally my voice. Uh, I'm, I'm not that sophisticated uh, a writer. Um I'm not that that skilled. I know my limitations. I, I do okay, but you know it lent itself to these projects. So far, so good. So, I, I guess I'm doing all right. I'd say so. I mean, you're one of the first nonfiction writers who hasn't put me to sleep. In fact, <laughs> if you like keep me wanting to read more, I'm like, what's happening next? I, I can't imagine a greater praise than that. That, I mean, that's what you want is you want to engage somebody and get them to read the next sentence and the next paragraph and go through the entire book. That's mm-hmm. the idea. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, obviously, you have worked in the OCME of Maryland for 10 years. Yes. What would you say is like maybe one or two of some of the biggest misconceptions people have either about the function of the office of the chief medical examiner or just the function of the medical examiner itself. There's a bunch of misconceptions that come from the popular procedural dramas. Uh, The medical examiner is not, not a part of the criminal justice system. They're, they're narrowly focused on the medical diagnosis of the cause and manner of death um there's there's that but we also um there's a a conception the the belief that anytime somebody dies suddenly and unexpectedly anywhere there's always a team of trained professionals who go to the scene and look for evidence and the body's taken to a well-equipped forensic medical center for an autopsy and um, the results come you know fairly quickly and they figure out what happened and the fact is that 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 is not what happens in most of the country, and it rarely happens at all. There's vast parts of the country that are underserved by competent, qualified forensic medical uh, uh, forensic pathology. And but furthermore, probably the biggest one is though they don't actually draw a chalk outline around a body. Okay, just dispense with that right off. It, that does not happen. <laughs> And see everyone like, you know, it's almost instantaneous. You see like a chalk outline and you think, oh, there was a dead body here. Someone investigated. That's right. Well, for one thing, they they can use photography. Photography is better than a chalk outline. Uh, It would involve moving and and tampering with evidence. 
to do that. So there's absolutely no reason to do it. And it so no, doesn't happen in real life. And it does make sense with the tampering of evidence, because obviously if there's a bullet casing right next to where you're right. drawing the outline. Yeah. Or or a trickle, you know, pool of blood, you, you can't draw th- you through it. So, yeah. Right. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in your book quite a few times, I would say, is the opioid epidemic that was happening in Baltimore. Now, I think when a lot of people think of the function of the medical examiner, I don't think they necessarily think of, oh, yes, they must also respond to opioid related deaths or, you know, those type related deaths on a regular basis. But it seems like from what you've written that that wasn't the case. No, and it's not the case uh, throughout the country. Basically, a medical examiner is going to get involved when there's uh, in a sudden and unexpected deaths, when somebody is not under the care of a doctor or not in a hospital, not in a nursing home. Most people die in hospice care or where they're known to have some illness. And so their doctor signs a death certificate, but the medical everybody else go to the medical examiner. So you're talking about uh, deaths from injury or violence, um, people who were just found dead somewhere that didn't show up for work. They're on their living room floor. And so uh, that's when they get involved. And you know, there's, there has been between 2013, 2019, the death rate from uh, opiate, uh, the opiate uh, death rate has increased um, over a thousand percent. It's just become huge. In Maryland, between 2012 and 2020, uh, 2020, uh, the the opiate de- deaths in Maryland increased by 60%. And I was astounded when I, I didn't realize until I started working there how extensive uh, drug use is uh, in terms of, you know, it's, it's young people, old people, urban and rural. Uh, and uh, with opiates, it, I was really surprised, frankly, that people in their 60s and 70s would die from uh, drug intoxication. And I, I, I guess these people were maintained or they were getting by as drunkies for years and years and years until they get a bad batch. And um, so that's one of the problems is that in, in times past, when somebody got into their 50s or 60s or 70s and they were found uh, dead at home, no sign of a break-in, a secured remis, uh, premises, no signs of violence, they would just sign that off as cardiovascular disease and be done with it. But now you can't assume that something is natural causes and you have to do much more examinations and many more people and do a lot more toxicology testing. Just all of it, it stresses the entire system. Yeah. I mean, aside from that, there were also a few other shocking revelations just about the law in Maryland specifically that you talked about. Um, For one, that you can go and pick up a body and take it home in your car and also this is where i was like this is bruce 100 when you're like when you write having it you know attaching it to the top of the roof is ill-advised that i yeah. was in stitches even though I, <laughs> I was obviously morbidly just like what you can just do that but then i laughed hysterically at that that was pretty much exactly my reaction as i'm reading this i had to study the law i have to understand the law that governs death, state law, and all, all these provisions. And, and I got that realization that uh, apparently so you could, any random person could 
drop by and pick up an unclaimed body and take off in her car. Which is just crazy because it feels like that should be a crime in and of itself, but also not. <laughs> you would think, but then, you know, if you, you know, ha, ha, not that this has ever, ever happened. I'm just saying this is, mm-hmm. this is entirely a hypothetical, but, you know, there's just, you would not be breaking a law. You, know, you wouldn't be able right. to legally, you know, charge this person with something and prevent that. Yeah. And I think that's the mind boggling part of it. I think that that someone who's just like, yeah, I'll take the unclaimed body. It's fine. Perhaps because it has not occurred. But- Maybe somebody will get the <laughs> idea and we'll find out what happened. I No, don't just. Yeah, don't. no. <laughs> I, I was so surprised when I read that. I was just like, how is this not a problem? Thankfully, it's not a problem, but you never know. You never, never know, know what people are thinking out there. Oh, that's true. <laughs> now, obviously, working in Baltimore specifically, there are a lot of violent crimes in Baltimore and in Maryland in general. Being that you work directly in the office of the chief medical examiner, did you ever become more fearful about living in Baltimore or was it kind of just like, well, this is, it is what it is. No, you know, I mean, Baltimore has this reputation uh, for violence. It is, it's got one of the highest per capita murder rates in the country, but I've lived here since the 1980s. I've lived in the city. I've walked up and I used to drive a taxi cab when I was in college. I mean, I, you know, all kinds of things. I know these streets. And I've never felt fearful. I've never felt like I was at risk. And, um, you know, the, the vast majority of homicides are between people who know each other. And they're usually about, uh, you know, sex or money or drugs or, you know, there's a, there's a beef and they know each other. Random violence is really very, very rare. And, you know, I, I'm not a road rager. I, I don't go around with an attitude. I think if you if somebody goes around looking for trouble, you don't have to go far to find it. But, you know, I, I just don't go through life that way. And I try to avoid, you know, um, I, I'm just not, uh, who knows, maybe I've been lucky so far, but I, I don't particularly, I don't have any beefs with anybody. I try not to encourage beefs against me. So, um, no, I feel I feel very comfortable here. Good. I mean, my sister went to college in Baltimore and she felt the same way. And I went to visit her and I was like, oh, my gosh, this place is great. It is you know? great. It is great. It's got it's lovely, beautiful. beautiful, got great neighborhoods. It has issues. A lot of cities do. Um, there are problems, but the people are good. The place is good. The food is good. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very charming place and um i love it to pieces and it also just so happens to be like literally one of the birthplaces of you know the medical examiner's office and what a medical examiner's office should look like that's right at one time it really was quite something it had a a very outstanding reputation Mm -hmm. now There have been some very controversial cases that have come through the OCME, specifically the Derek Chauvin case. That that was Minneapolis, but Dr. Fowler did testify in the Derek Chauvin case. Yes, right. 
Yeah, which was interesting that he testified. And I know that you shared in the book that you and some of your other colleagues were kind of confused as to what he would have to say yeah. in his defense. But this, what is interesting to me is that even though he didn't, I mean, obviously him testifying on the side of the person where everyone saw the video of what happened to um, George Floyd. Yeah. It was very difficult to hear. However, it opened a huge can of worms. Yeah, it did. Not just for him, but for you and the rest of the department as well. Yeah, it did. And what's also interesting, like what I found just so interesting, though, because even in his like I reread his testimony and I was kind of like, he doesn't say like there's nothing that says he didn't do it. In his testimony. He just to me anyway, it just seemed like he gave the facts of what actually happened as far as how the death occurred. Right. Well, here, you know, I, I am not a forensic uh, pathologist. I'm not even a doctor. So you know, I'm really not one to, you know, comment on the value of what he said. I will say this, though, that, you know, Dr. Fowler consulted on that case as part of a panel. I believe that there are 12 or 13 people who are on this panel, which included uh, there was more than one forensic uh, pathologist. There were some toxicologists and, and other people. And so he was the one who was representing the consensus of this panel. Mm -hmm. And and the thing you have to understand uh, about uh, any sort of court testimony is that you're only you can only ask the questions that are being asked. You can only answer what's being asked of you, mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to elaborate. And the uh, the defend the the prosecutor, whoever the opposing side is is going to do their very best to make you look incompetent, um, uh, mistaken, you know, foolish. And, and so, um, you know, you, you don't have an opportunity to, there's, it's not as though he had, you know, an hour, 90 minutes, two hours to give a presentation and, you know, his, and, but the bottom line is, you know, this is his, it's an opinion. It is his opinion of you know an explanation and so you know people give opinions in litigation all the time mm -hmm. all the time a and somebody says one thing somebody says another okay life goes on so um but the backlash to that was quite uh, severe um both you know uh, individually in terms of you know getting the brunt of the phone calls and the emails and all the outrage from the public was directed to me but then it was not long after that then the maryland attorney general ordered a review of all the deaths that occurred in in custody of police during his tenure which put me right in the middle of all, all mm -hmm. that as well so uh it's still going on the the reverberations from his testimony are still being felt and um whatever things will work out the way they work out that is true yeah, it just I don't know when I read like I said, when I reread that part, I was kind of just like, huh, like it seems like he's getting a lot of backlash because people don't like his interpretation of the facts. But at the same time, like you said, he was on a panel of, you know, with 12 other yeah. doctors had one of them come up and been the representative. 
Yeah, I know. Would the same thing had occurred, where they and, would and you, and you don't even you, you can't even get into their their analysis, their you know the the whole thing uh, because it's, you're only taking little snippets and asking certain specific things just to for an agenda for mm -hmm. a purpose. So you know, you know it is what it is, and um, I, I I I don't believe he. You know, I I know that uh, Dr. Fowler is still active and still you know he's still around and still doing things and. Uh, it hasn't uh, been the end of him, and and uh, I still have, you know, respect for him, and um, life goes on. Yeah, it's just a shame though that you know it had to turn out that way. And I think another thing that you bring up in your novel is that you know these forensic pathologists, these medical examiners, they are looking at the evidence that the body is giving them. That's right. They're not, you know, they're not there to solve the case, which, you know, I feel like is what procedural dramas give you where it's like, oh, my gosh, the Emmy found this one piece of evidence that proves X, Y and Z. And, yep, it's the nail in the coffin when right. that's not really how it is. Always. That's right. Anyway, that's right. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I felt like there were similar parallels to Tyrone West's killing as yeah. well as there were two. Did you do that on purpose? Because I feel like they were close at certain point. Like, I, I, I thought that Tyrone West was sort of um, emblematic. You know, it was a it, it was a, a as a case study to to look at and to take apart for one reason, because the autopsy report had been published. And so there is nothing there's nothing in the book that's confidential or uh, privileged mm -hmm. or anything like that. So. I had to rely on available materials, but um, it, I, you know George Floyd. Obviously, you know the 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 reason why that affected so many people so so much was because of the uh, the videotape. Mm -hmm. Seeing it for your own eyes, I think, is is very different. Um, you know, the the fact is that um, um, you know uh, people people die in the custody of police uh, way too often. Mm -hmm. way, way, way too often. A and we, we, so many times we just don't see it. We don't hear about it. And, um, it's, it's only when something like that, um, you know, in, in, uh, this woman who had the cell phone footage in Minneapolis to capture the whole thing mm -hmm. really, I think, uh, brought that into a sharp focus for, for George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And even with Tyrone West's death, um, I think it was Pam, Dr. Pamela Snowhall. South, Southall. Southall. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just was so fascinated because it, autopsy report wise, because I mean, if anyone were looking at these cases and had video potentially for both cases, I feel like the outcomes are very similar. Yes. Whereas it was a pre-existing or pre-existing heart condition yes. that was triggered by X, Y, or potentially triggered by X, Y, Z. Exactly. And, right. you know, and it's just like, well, I don't know. It was just so like frustrating to see how, you know, that can happen. But then and again, I think it just feeds back into this notion that we think that medical examiners are solving these cases based off of what they find in the body versus yes. the other part that the police have to actually put together, which is the surrounding circumstantial and, you know, other physical evidence. That's right. 
and and it's and it's frustrating that you know you have to keep your personal feelings out of it you can't you know as much as you would want to out of sympathy for one side or another um you, you can only go as far as the evidence takes you and and you know there, there are limits to how much you can know and beyond that you can't speculate or fill in pieces or anything like that yeah exactly there's yeah. one um tv medical examiner who i'm trying to think of her name um it's mara it's from oh, show's gonna bother me <laughs> it was an old it was an older show it just recently went off the air with angie Harmon. Oh. um but anyway the girl who plays the chief medical examiner she has a line where they ask her they're like well do you think it could have been this do you think it could be that and she's just like i don't make assumptions in this room i only go by the facts and i was That's like exactly right yeah so at least there's one aspect of a true crime show out there that is at least sort of giving that you know, versus the other ones where it seems like sometimes they're more in cahoots with the cops than we know them to be. That's right. No, credit to them. Absolutely. All right. So for my last question, because obviously you have since left the OCME, what would you say you missed most about working there, if anything? Oh, I, I missed the place terribly. Um, it's, it's an amazing place. I most of all, I miss the people. I really, really do. The people who work there are just some of the most, they're just amazing. I mean, you have to realize that the folks at the OCME, everybody has experience before they even start working there. Uh, you have to have five years of major trauma experience before you can apply as a forensic uh, investigator. Uh, medical examiners go through 13 years of training before they even start the autopsy techs. You have to have prior experience. So everybody who works there has chosen to be there. And, and the work is often unpleasant. It's a government job. So yeah, the benefits are nice, but you're not going to get rich. It's not the, it's not the top of the line salary wise. And yet they choose to do this. And a lot of people who are there, I mean, there is sort of a brotherhood to it. You have these shared experiences um, there's a lot of bonding that goes on. You can't talk about the, the work outside of the office with your family or anything. So really the only people that you can commiserate with and talk with are your coworkers. So it really does develop. It feels very much like a family. Um, and they're just, you know, everybody there, I've never worked someplace with such a sense of, of, of purpose. I mean, really a sense of mission They're they're there because they choose to be there. And they're doing this because it's it's what they feel is important to do. And um, it was really, you want to be on a winning team. You know, you want to be on a good team. And and there was that feeling of satisfaction of belonging to this, this team that was really, really great. That's incredible. Well, thank you again so much for being with me. Can you let the listeners know where they can find you? And most importantly, where they can get your book? Well, uh, both 18 Tiny Desks and OCME are available anywhere people get books. Uh, support independent bookstores. That's always good. Or okay. if you do online or whatever, at the library, it's available in okay. Kindle, ebook. Um, and um, they can find me at brucegoldfarb.com. Um, I'm there. I'm on Facebook, all the usual places, Instagram. And um, yeah. 
All right. And you'll come back when you write your next thing or you have something else to talk about, right? I, I will always, always come back with or without a book, but I will have, a, I will, I will. Great. I mean, again, with or without, I'm happy to have you. It's always a pleasure. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting? television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our, in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Bruce Goldfarb. Don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia. And if you want to get your hands on some bonus content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And until next week, my loves, I will see you later. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face, and you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the pink triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote 
a war novel and a dystopian novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. And what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein? So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the ivory tower boiler room cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So... If you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, yes. really great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns. Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila, thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Happy winter, everyone.